Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 will begin in a moment in verse number 8. If this is your first time worshiping with us, we are so honored to have you be with us today at our 11 o'clock service. Those of you watching online, we're so well, glad to have you as well. And so the, those of you in the room with the chair back in front of you is this little connection card. If you'll fill out whatever base you want to share, maybe you have a prayer request or a decision you want to make, or maybe you want to take that next step of baptism uh, like you just saw a moment ago, uh, we want to give you an opportunity to use this card to do that. And you can turn into a pastor in the service, put it in the offering box as you leave, or uh, you can go to the commons area, to the next steps area, out to your left as you leave this building, and you can go and talk to one of our folks there. Give them this card, and they'll give you a bag, and inside will have coupons to Chick-fil-A, and you will just have a great day uh, tomorrow. If you go there today, you can circle around seven times. Maybe it'll fall down. I don't know. Uh, or maybe some chicken will fall out of the sky. But anyway... We're so grateful to have you. Just as you saw, that's our Love Naples video next Saturday. Uh, we have a great opportunity for you if you want to go out and love on our community. Uh, we have hundreds of projects, hundreds of people going out sharing the love of Jesus, and we want you to be a part of that. And so if you haven't signed up for that, we want to encourage you to do so. For those of you that are tech savvy, if you got this little first word as you came in, there's a little QR code you can scan, and you can uh, take you right there while, while you're getting on uh, Instagram. You can just scan on that while I'm preaching, and you can do all different things, and it'll help you sign up to be a part of Naples. And here's the thing. If you sign up today, if you go out in the comments, you'll get a free T-shirt. And uh, people do a lot of things for free T-shirts. So there you are. You can sign up for that. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's all stand read, as we read God's Word. Acts 1, 8, and then we're going to go to Mark 4, verses 30 through 32, which will be on the screen. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit says through Dr. Luke, but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And then the Bible says in Mark chapter 4, verse 30, and Jesus said, with what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You may be seated. Here's the question. How many of you use a BlackBerry phone today? I asked the 930 service. We had one person. I asked Saturday night, nada. In 2010, Almost 20% of all smartphones in America were BlackBerry. So people use, 20% of all people that use smartphones were BlackBerry. Today, it's 0.2%. Now, some of you, maybe you're middle schoolers, you're like, what's a BlackBerry, Dad? 
Well, it's a phone. It's an old phone. And there was a day that every cool kid had a BlackBerry phone. But today, there's very few kids even alive that know what a BlackBerry phone is. Why is that? Well, there's been a lot of research that have been done uh, by business folks. And here's kind of the consensus. The reason why it is where it's at today, BlackBerry phone, is because BlackBerry, the company, uh, which is RIM, did not innovate quickly enough. In, the, in 2008, the iPhone came out, Apple came with brand new technology. And what BlackBerry did is rather than go and change technology, they, they wouldn't change. Matter of fact, they wouldn't modify their operating system to a, allow something called apps on their phone. Unless they were BlackBerry apps, they couldn't be on their phone. And so the operating system, plus the lack of ability of using outsider apps, plus BlackBerry's unwillingness to change the physical shape or the size is what really led to their demise. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest mistakes that that a lot of people say is that, that BlackBerry refused to get rid of the physical keyboard and move to touchscreen technology. So again, middle schoolers in the room, back in the olden days, there would be physical keyboards on the phone. And so BlackBerry was afraid that if they got rid of that physical keyboard, that they would lose their loyal BlackBerry phone users. They would lose them. They would leave and go to something else. Well, it was in that fear of losing their current customers that actually kept them from reaching a new generation of BlackBerry phone users. And so it wouldn't be till eight years later after touchscreen technology had been out for eight years in 2016, that BlackBerry put out a phone called the Priv, P-R-I-V, and it didn't work. The market left them behind, and now that company is really a shell of what they were. Now, you say, why am I saying this? Well, when it comes to the church... We should never compromise the message. We will never compromise the message. We'll never back down or back away or step back from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church is built on the gospel. We will never water it down. We will never compromise. We will never go with the tropes of culture. We will stand on the message of the gospel. It's not going to change. But yet, we must be willing to reevaluate and think through our strategies and our methods. Just because we've always done something doesn't mean we should always do something the same way. For years, our church has been a lighthouse ministry in this community. And God has done some amazing things in and through our church to reach Naples and the surrounding community. And our vision is to continue that legacy, but in this way, to glorify God by being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that raises up the next generation of disciple makers, church planners, missionaries, and world changers that reaches Naples to the nations. We believe that the future is for those who send and multiply, not just for a large church in one location, but to be a large mega multiplying church in multiple locations. And so our vision is that the sun would never set on the ministry, mission, and vision of our church as we reach Naples to the nations. And where do we get this from? Where does this desire to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generation, multiplying church? Well, it comes from the Bible. 
And we've been looking these past few weeks at, at where the biblical ed- uh, emphasis are uh, for these particular uh, things. And today we're in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. He was a doctor, a medical doctor. He also authored the book of Luke. And, and he was uh, commissioned by a guy named Theophilus to write a two-volume study of all that Jesus began to do and teach on the earth. And so he begins to write all that Jesus did on the earth and through his disciples and all that Jesus began to do and teach, he continues to do through his church even today. And so the heart of the book of Acts is verse eight of chapter one. It is in this Acts 1-8 verse that we see both the vision and the mission of the book and the vision and the mission of our church. You and I as believers, if you're a Christian in this room or you're watching online, you and I exist for the vision and mission of God. And so in Acts 1-8, we see God's vision is global, and our mission in that vision is multiplication. So let's just kind of unpack that. First, God's vision is global. We'll start at the end of verse number 8, where he says, In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What you see is as Jesus started his church, that this church is a movement. And this movement starts local and moves global. God's vision was that the whole church would take the whole gospel to the whole world. And so this verse serves as an outline to the book of Acts where that church moved from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth following the vision of God. Now, the disciples were not thinking as God was thinking, as Jesus was thinking. As a matter of fact, in verse number six, prior to verse eight, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? When the disciples thought about the kingdom, they were only thinking in local terms. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to make Israel great again? Uh, they wanted Israel to be restored. They wanted Jerusalem to be built back better. Uh, they were not thinking the nations. They were thinking their nation. They were not thinking of all peoples. They were just thinking of their peoples. But yet the heart of God has always been for the world. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, in that creation mandate, God created Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers who would reflect my glory in the world. After the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that they would be one, born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that it would be through that line, that, that line of Adam and Eve, and out of the midst of brokenness and chaos, there would come a, a line. And, and we know that God would go through the, uh, the line of Abraham. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a guy named Abram, who was worshiping the moon and the Ur of the Chaldees, to now worship the one who created the moon. And God called him and said, I'm going to bless you. I am going to uh, bless you so that, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. As the prophets write to the nation of Israel that would come from Abraham, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Later on, the psalmist David in Psalm 22, in that messianic prophecy in verse 27 said, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The sons of Korah singing in Psalm 67, verse one, a rift from the Aaronic blessing found in the book of Numbers says that may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all nations. You have that 
Old Testament prophet Jonah. Have you ever heard of the story of Jonah? It's a whale of a tail. <laughs> Jonah spent three days and three nights on a foam blubber mattress. The book of Jonah is a sad picture. It's a picture of the nation of Israel that was running away from the calling of God. It's a picture of the nation of Israel that sought only its own blessing, not the blessings of the nations. Jonah is a caricature. He's a picture of the whole nation of Israel. He was more concerned with his own comfort and personal prejudices than the message of mercy and blessings that God had given him to share with the nations. Jesus, as he gives his great commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, says, go and make disciples of all nations, pantate, ethne. Jesus called his disciples to be a part of a global vision to bring about true restoration and usher in the kingdom of God on this earth. And that was not just a commission given to the disciples then and there, but it is a commission given to all of us here and now. God's vision for our church is global from Naples to the nations. Those of you that are longing for the second coming of Christ, Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And what that tells us is that the work that Jesus has given us is not yet completed. If the vision is in the entire world, te ethne, then we are facing an unfinished task. Right now, as we are going around the sun, there are 7.75 billion people breathing air on planet Earth at this moment. 43% of the world's 16,000 people groups are still unreached and unengaged. That is, less than 2% of those people groups have a born-again population. Those 43% equals 4.25 billion people walking on the face of the earth who have little to no access to the gospel. In the 1040 window, there are 4.5 billion people and 61% of those, 2.8 billion, are still unreached. 29% of the world's population is cut off from the gospel because of persecution. There's only one thing worse than being lost, and that is being lost and no one trying to find you. Wilson Geisler, who is a research person for the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention through his extensive research on population and understanding the spiritual condition of the world, he estimates that 157,690 people die every single day lost. 157,690 people die every single day in this world without a saving relationship with Jesus. In our own county, if in our non-season population, we're in season now, but in a non-season population in our county, the population is estimated to be around 500,000. What percentage do you believe in your mind are true, truly born-again, spirit-filled believers in our county? If we were to kind of look at attendance in church and membership, which are horrible indicators to really understand born-again, spirit-filled believers. But let's just say if we were to do that and do a deep dive, I would say at the very, very best, 10% of our county would have a real relationship with Jesus. And so if you just think about that, that's 50,000 people. And if you think that at the very best, 10% of the people in our county have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that means that 90% of our county does not know Jesus. If you're in a room with 10 people, the statistics would probably be that you are the only one that's a believer in a room of 10 people in our county. For us to just move the needle 1% 
in our county alone would mean that 5,000 people would need to come to a saving faith of Jesus Christ. We have work to do. And therefore, we cannot afford to be myopic, to be nearsighted and short-sighted to the vision that God has for his glory, his kingdom, that his salvation may spread to the ends of the earth. And this does not mean that all will be saved. This does not mean that all will go to heaven. But it does mean that Jesus died to save people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. God's vision is global. Our mission in that vision is multiplication. Now, verse 8, the beginning. But you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is a third member of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with God, the Father, and the Son. The Holy Spirit is Christ in the Christian. He empowers the church and he indwells believers. He empowers us and indwells us. And all throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit empowering believers to be an effective witness for Christ so that the gospel would be proclaimed to the nations. Understand this, church, that God has already placed into our hands everything necessary to complete his great commission and his vision in the world. He says, you shall receive power. Therefore, you and I are without excuses because we've been given everything that we need to do what he's called us to do. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. That word witness is the word marturus. Found 29 times in the book of Acts. A witness is someone who just tells what has happened. The disciples of Jesus were expert witnesses of Jesus and the gospel because Jesus had transformed them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says that when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John. They, they took note that these were unlearned, uneducated men. These were hicks from the sticks, hillbillies from the other side of the tracks. And he said they marveled at them because these people spoke with such incredible boldness and passion and conviction. And the reason why they spoke with boldness, passion and conviction, even though they were a bunch of nobodies, is because they had been with Jesus. What made the disciples such an effective witness for the gospel is that they were a part of the evidence that Jesus Christ changes lives. And so as God sent and empowered the disciples, he has sent and empowered all believers to be his witness in the world. It's a very quiet morning. I'm hearing very little amens or excitement. But I want you to understand that all believers, if you're a Christian in this room, you are on mission for Jesus. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Christopher Wright says that Jesus did not give a mission to his church, but he formed a church for his mission. Without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. Now, the word mission is not found anywhere in the Bible. It actually comes from the Latin word that corresponds with the Greek verb, to send. But essentially, a mission has three components, a sender, person being sent, and an assignment that the sender has sent the, the sendee to do. So a mission means that someone is sent to, by somebody to do something specific. And so if my wife came to me and she said, Alan, I, I want to send you on a mission, and that is to find your daughter's shoes. They're somewhere in the house. This mission, if you choose to accept it, is to go around the house and find Anna's shoes, not to sit on the couch, not to ask your, your sons to do it, not to look in the fridge and find food. Your only success 
is finding your daughter Anna's shoes. Don't find my shoes. Don't find your shoes. Don't find somebody else's shoes. Find her shoes. When you have clarity for the mission, then you can do your job. Well, what's our mission as a church? What's, our, what's my mission as an individual? There's a lot of confusion. There's a lack of clarity. Let me just clear up some confusion of what the mission of our church is. The mission of our church is not to build bigger buildings. The, the mission of our church is not to have bigger budgets. The mission of our church is not to have more butts in the seats. It's not to draw great crowds or have great programming. The mission of our church is not just doing good deeds or seeking social justice. It's not just helping the helpless, the homeless, and the hurting with a hand up or a hand out. The mission of our church is something far more important, far more impactful and eternal, and that is multiplying disciples. You say, well, what's a disciple? I'm so glad you asked. A disciple is this. It's someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. To follow Jesus in faith means that I learn to trust him, just to trust God like Jesus, to fall uh, more in love with God, to trust him, to, to increase my faith, to depend more and more on God and less and less on me. That's to follow Jesus in faith. And to follow Jesus in lifestyle is it the, the result of my walking in, and walking in faith is living a life of obedience that I begin to lo- look like Jesus and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus and act like Jesus. And the result of following Jesus in faith and following Jesus in lifestyle is that I will have a desire in my heart to help others follow Jesus in faith and lifestyle. See, it's not just a personal relationship. Nowhere in the Bible will you ever find the words, salvation is a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, it is a personal relationship, but it's not a private one. Your relationship with Jesus should be a public one. That's what we witnessed in the baptism this morning, that we should have a desire to help others have a relationship with Jesus. David Platt said that every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. You say, well, how can I do that? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a seminary student. I'm not that great of a, of a speaker. Well, here's what, you want, what I want you to understand. What we have just read in 1.8 tells us something that the whole book of Acts tells us. The whole book of Acts is a testimony of what the Holy Spirit can do in and through ordinary believers. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he left 120 disciples in the upper room. Those 120 disciples in two generations would turn the world upside down. And you and I are believers today on the other side of the world from Israel because those 120 people took the mission of multiplication seriously. See, the metric of our success cannot be just in how many people we can attract and seat. The metric of the success of our church in the mission must be in how many people we disciple and how many we send out. The first is addition. The second is multiplication. The first is being a mega regional church in one location. The second is being a mega multiplying church in multiple locations. Why? Why multiply? Because multiplication beats addition addition every time. It just does. See, if you had a choice between receiving $10,000 a day for 30 days or doubling a penny compound every day, doubling a penny each day, which would you choose? 
Now, some of you say, well, I'll take the 10K a day. I mean, I, I, it's like Publishers Clearinghouse just comes and knocks on my door every day with a $10,000 check. Well, if you do that for 30 days, you'll get $300,000. It's a lot of money, just not in Naples. <laughs> and some of you say, I'll take the 10K a day, preacher. But the math teacher and the banker would say, no, 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 you want to double a penny daily. And if you double, 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 double for 30 days, it would net $10,737,418.23 in 30 days. Albert Einstein was asked, what is the most powerful force in the universe? His answer, compound interest. See, sadly, many churches have pursued the $10,000 a day model, putting the emphasis on church attendance and budget giving. Many churches around America have found their value and worth because of their ability to draw a crowd. But the problem is that if you live by the crowd, you will die by the crowd. The crowd may be something you can brag about and get you invited to speak at conferences, but it may not lead to long-term kingdom advancement. Jesus drew crowds. Thousands of people came to see Jesus. But Jesus cared more about making disciples. Why? Because crowds come and go, but disciples come and grow. Crowds are easy to draw. Disciples are harder to make. Jesus did not despise the crowds. He rejoiced and was happy to minister to the crowds. We rejoice. We are happy to minister to the crowds. Yet the long-term advancement of disciple-making far outweighs the short-term excitement of crowd-drawing. Crowd-drawing is cotton candy. Disciple-making is an oak tree. Again, we're not against having large crowds. We're calling you to go out and invite as many people as you can to be here for worship and to be here for Easter. We want people to be here so they can hear the gospel go out. But we have to be careful not to devote all of our energy in producing only large crowds. I've heard some people in lay leadership say, Pastor, I'm so busy running the ministry, so busy running the programs, I don't have time to personally disciple other people. Sadly, I think that we have made it so easy to spend all of our energy making weekends exciting and great that we have no time to make disciples during the week. Most sadly, the reason why we're seeing churches implode and churches plateau and churches dying across America and the reason why we're seeing churches compromise the truths of the gospel is because churches in America are over-programmed and under-discipled. We have put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Paul understood the power of exponential multiplication. Paul, in speaking to his disciple, young Timothy, who pastored the church in Ephesus, writes in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, that you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will, able, who will be able to teach others also. Here's what he says. He says, what you learn from me, pass it down. And those people that you pass it down to, pass it down to someone else. In other words, he says, Timothy, you need to lead your church to be a church of disciples that make disciples that make disciples. That's what we are. If you look at the New Testament, when disciples are made, churches are planted. Rodney Stark, who is a historian, a Christian historian who has done extensive research on the early church in the first few centuries, writes in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that, by, that the best estimates indicate that by the end of the first century, there were only about 7,500 believers. 
Most of these were genuine disciples that were devoted to raising up the next generation of leaders after them. 7,500. It seems shocking, but that's what he has come to. By 400 AD, 300 years later, as many as 34 million people professed faith in Christ Jesus. From 7,500 to 34 million. Some scholars say that half the Roman Empire had become believers by 400 AD. That's the power of multiplication. Being committed, devoted to multiplication. J.D. Greer in his book, Gaining by Losing, said that the power of multiplication far exceeds the impact of great preaching, professional worship bands, and impressive facilities. The early church had none of what we have, yet was able, what, yet, or was able to do what we haven't been able to do. See, when churches make disciples, they inevitably plant churches. You can't plant churches and hope to make disciples. You have to make disciples and you'll plant churches. See, church growth takes planning, takes strategy. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's do it. We want to grow this church. We want to see the kingdom flourish here in our region. But church multiplication takes a miracle. It takes the work of God, the spirit of God, moving in the people of God to do the work that God's called them to do. And here's the deal, Pickles. God has given us his spirit, his gospel, and his vision to do what only he can do in and through us. And therefore, we as his people must take the mission of multiplication seriously. Every disciple is expected to make disciples. I was interviewing a couple a few years ago as a trustee, International Mission Board. I interview couples quarterly. And this particular couple was headed to the Horn of Africa. When I asked them in our interview, what do you think the disconnect is between the American church and going on mission and being on mission for Jesus and sharing the gospel? What do you think the, the disconnect is? And here's what this young couple said. They, they said the American church doesn't see themselves in the picture. If someone comes up to you and shows you a picture of a bunch of people and you don't see yourself in that picture, you look at it and say, well, that's nice. And then you just move on. He says, they said, this is where the American church is. They see the picture of the Great Commission, but they haven't found themselves in it. They think it's about other people. It's not about them. They don't see it as something that they are a part of. Our vision at first is to be a disciple-making church that plants churches that plants churches. And I've got great news. If you are a Christian, you are part of that picture. You say, well, pastor, I don't live here. I live like six months here and six months somewhere else. Well, great. For the six months you're here, you're on mission here. And for the six months you're there, you're on mission there. There are no part-time Christians. You say, pastor, I'm retired. Great, you've got more time on your hands. <laughs> you know, some people think, well, you know, because a lot of people move to Naples to just live one long vacation until they croak. <laughs> and so the mindset is, well, I'm going to make a bunch of money. I'm going to move to Naples. I'm going to wake up every morning, drink coffee, watch the ocean waves come in, go in the after mid-morning, play pickleball, play softball. Play canasta, play cards, have a good lunch, late afternoon, walk with my wife. Her name is Sally. We're going to walk on the seashores, and she's going to collect seashells. <laughs> then that evening, we're going to have exquisite dinners, have a lot of fun, go to bed at 930, <laughs> and wake up and do it all over again. 
Some of you said, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> I say it's a tragedy. We should want to expend every moment, every minute of the rest of our lives on mission for Jesus because one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Doesn't mean you can't have fun. Doesn't mean you can't collect seashells by the seashore. But it does mean that you need to live your life on mission for Jesus. And the next few years of our church are pivotal. We don't know if Christ is going to return in the next few years or not. And so we're going to tarry and we're going to continue doing what God has called us to do. And that is being a church of disciples that make disciples. And we are going to be a, a, even more uh, intentional in creating pathways. It's one thing for a church to say, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. But if you don't know what a disciple is and you don't know how to make one and there's no clear, simple, replicable pathways to do it, you'll never do it. So we don't want to just give you fish. We want to teach you how to fish. And I'm going to just let you in on something. We'll have successes and we'll have failures. It will get messy. It may be confusing. You may be inconvenienced. Times may change. Things may happen. You may not be happy all the time, but we'll be in this together. And what I'm asking for you to do this morning is to commit your life to make disciples, to step up and step out, to, uh, to give financially, to spend time in prayer, to be sacrificial for the vision and mission of the, the kingdom of God, and the mission of this church. We want to ask you to go out into your Jerusalem, to the highways and hedges, to share the gospel with your friends, your relatives, your associates, and your neighbors. We want you to be a part of this movement of raising up the next generation of disciple makers, church planners, and missionaries. We need your help. We need your prayers. And we need your willingness to do what God's called us all to do. And we want to equip you to do it. Here's the good news. It can happen. Let's go back to Mark chapter 4. I hadn't forgotten about that verse. Mark chapter 4 verse 30. Jesus says, what shall we compare the kingdom of God and what shall we liken to it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. It's itty bitty, teeny weeny. And yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than the garden plants and puts out branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. What is Jesus teaching there? Jesus is teaching us that God's kingdom has a small, unimpressive beginning, but a sure and cosmic ending. The mustard seed was the smallest seed sown in ancient Israel. Jesus says that the kingdom of God starts almost microscopic and grows and explodes in growth, and it produces something completely out of proportion to itself. Listen, we're not very impressive. You say, well, we got a big building, we got a big budget, and we're not very impressive. Compared to the world, we're a blip on the radar. But yet we'll have a glorious ending. One day the king will return. And he'll usher in his kingdom. And what started with 12 ordinary nobodies is going to end up with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Multiplying disciples is messy. It's time-consuming. It's difficult. And you and I, we may never see results for years, if ever. But I want to tell you it's worth it. We know it'll happen because we have God's promise of power. Therefore, we have no excuses. And we have God's promise of success. We definitely have no excuses. William Carey, who was a missionary in India, 
said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But he also said this. He says, our future is as bright as the promises of God. Let me end. In 1912, Dr. William Leslie, who was from Toronto, Canada, he was a doctor. He's Canadian, eh? It's for all you Canadians in the room. He felt God's calling to go serve in the remote jungles of the Dominican Republic of Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as a medical missionary. For 17 years, he and his wife labored. They actually had to carve out a path just to get through the jungle, and then they had to carve out a patch of the jungle to begin to serve for a home and a home base and these very remote people and remote, remote villages. And from day one, everything was difficult. The first couple of years they were there, they endured a hurricane that struck the night before one of their children was born. Uh, they faced charging buffaloes. Dr. Leslie was out and a buffalo charged him and broke some ribs. At night, they would have to deal with attacks from ants, not from relatives, but from ants. Their neighbors were cannibals. That's why they never went to anyone's house for dinner. They went all throughout these villages with medical care, and they were met with very little success. After 17 years of giving their lives in these jungles, Dr. Leslie had a had a rift with one of the tribal leaders and the Leslie's decided they'd had enough and they were going to leave the mission field and they get on a boat from Africa and they go to Europe and from Europe, they get on a boat and go to New York City and as soon as they get off the boat, there's no fanfare. There's nobody there. Nobody cared. They go back to their home in Toronto, Canada, discouraged, defeated, thinking that they were a failure and nine years after they return home, Dr. Leslie died. In 2010, a team of missionaries returned to those same jungles that Dr. Leslie had served in. And to their surprise, they found eight villages with thriving churches. In one village, they found a thousand-seat church. In the 1980s, the church had so many people, so many people worshiping there. The congregation was so crowded that they started a church planning movement in the surrounding villages. Those churches are still thriving to this day. When the tribal people were asked by the missionaries, how did this all started? They didn't know his name. They didn't know his first name. They didn't know his last name. But this missionary team discovered that the person who is responsible for starting this work was Dr. William Leslie and his wife. And he never knew it. For the rest of his life, he thought he was a failure. For the rest of his life, he thought that he was, was just defeated. What he thought was failure, God saw was successful. And here's what I want you to understand, church. We are never a failure if we leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel. Only in eternity will we know how God has used our efforts to further his kingdom. But here's the truth. The kingdom of God has a small, unimpressive beginning, but a sure 
big ending. God can use you. He wants to use you. And you can do what He's called you to do because you've been empowered by His Spirit, given His gospel, and sent out by the Master. And my prayer is, is that you would say, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. From Naples to the nations. Father, in Jesus' name, would your Holy Spirit do a work that only your Holy Spirit can do? Father, would you excite our church for this vision to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multiplying church? Father, that we would reach that next generation, that we would raise that next generation to be the next disciple makers, church planners, missionaries, and world changers that, that, that ripples and reaches Naples to the nations. Father, we love you. God, move in the hearts of those who need you today. God, let your spirit do what only your spirit can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.